I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. I'm sitting here in Melbourne in an Airbnb with the fabulous Kate Billing, who I've known for a couple of years. Um, We do Thought Leaders Business School in Melbourne and Sydney together, and every quarter we share an Airbnb so that when we have those 3 a.m. meltdowns, we've got someone to talk to. (laughs) Anyway, enough about my meltdowns at 3 a.m. Kate is the founder and creative director at Blacksmith. Blacksmith is a leadership practice based out of Auckland, New Zealand, which is why she sounds a bit funny when she talks. I do not sound funny. (laughs) Um, And Kate works across New Zealand and across Australia. Thanks so much, Kate, for agreeing to have this chat with me. My pleasure. I figured we should record a conversation given that we have so many of them whenever we catch up. (laughs) Some of it might be useful to someone else. Yeah, I'm sure it will be more than just some. So my first question I ask all of my guests is, what does connection mean to you? Oof, really, really big question, actually, because I think there are lots of levels on which it um, means something to me. First of all, it is one of the fundamental needs that all humans have. You know, we're social animals and we're wired for connection and beyond that belonging but connection as a base need for human beings, myself included. And then connection not just to other people, but actually to ourselves. And I think that's one of the critical connections that's missing these days, actually. We're not that connected to ourselves, let alone having real connections with other human beings as opposed to loose connections and collections of bodies online. Yeah, so my theory is that unless you're connected to yourself, how can you possibly be connected to someone else? Not in any real or meaningful way one would think, no. What are some of the ways you connect with yourself? I'm a regular journaler. So I spend time with my own mind by just observing it in terms of meditation on a daily basis. And I also journal regularly, not necessarily every day anymore. I go through periods of doing that every day. And what those things do in combination is allow me to just be with myself as I am, you know, particularly my mind, to observe my experience rather than get kind of caught up in it, but to notice when I am getting caught up and some of the stories that I'm telling myself that might be helpful or less helpful about what's going on. But, yeah, just spending time with your mind, with your body, time and rest. Actually, one of the nicest places I connect myself is just after I've woken up before I turn the lights on, lying in bed, just kind of being with what is. It's a really lovely moment. I think we can kind of be in this rushingness of the alarm goes off, get up, get on with the day, when there's this lovely little space after you wake up and you're lying all warm and snugly where you can just sort of feel your body, feel your mind, think about the day ahead. You must get up a lot earlier than me because it's never dark when I get up. (laughs) (laughs) I, I do. I am a very early riser. Oh, too funny. We've spoken about meditation before and how it's had such a massive impact on you. How did you get started into that practice? I got started with it actually a long time ago. I developed a stress-related autoimmune disorder called alopecia areata. And part of what I learned to do in the treatment of that 
was about reducing my stress through meditation. So in the beginning, I, I got into it for purely therapeutic reasons. You're 24 and you're losing your hair, trying to make sense of it, and nobody can tell you why. You pretty much try anything <laughs> to try and solve it. And it took a long time and part of a protocol of a whole lot of other things to rectify it. But what it did get me doing it out of a needs, it got me doing it from a needs perspective. And the thing about meditation, once you start it and you experience it and the value, the benefit, the peace, is it's pretty hard to stop. So I got into it not to be all zen, strictly speaking, but to help get my hair back. Didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. That must have been pretty confronting as a 24-year-old. When I was 24, I was incredibly vain and very looks conscious and losing my hair would have been horrifying. Oh, yeah, and at the time I was on the other side of the world, and this is the early 90s, there's no internet connection, there's no Google to try and work out, Dr. Art can't ask Dr. Google what's wrong, you know, collect phone calls home only in the case of an emergency. So, yeah, it was very challenging. And with the benefit of hindsight and now many years, but the understanding that that was just one of the links in a chain that was evidence of a real struggle with my connection with myself, my relationship with myself. So this idea of connection with self is really personal for me because I've experienced all of the downsides of when that connection is broken. And you do a lot of work in that space with other people now. I fortunately attended your tune-in workshop last year in Auckland. Yeah, it was great to have you there. That was just so revolutionary for me in so many ways. And I thought that I had a really good connection with myself until I went to that and realized that, okay, I do, but I still have a lot more that I can do. You may recall me saying at that workshop, the relationship we have with ourselves is the longest single relationship we have with anybody in our lives. You're the only one who's present to everything you think and everything you say. And yet we don't create the space to think about that, to acknowledge it, let alone work on it actively. And we see the downsides of that in all kinds of ways around mental health, loneliness, people struggling with change challenges at work, disconnection in families due to technology, all sorts of ways this uh, relationship with ourselves that's not being acknowledged and nurtured is showing up. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think there's a lot to answer for from mental health particular around that work that we can do just to prevent some mental health issues. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Otto Sharma's work on you theory, and he talks about the three divides, and one of them is called the spiritual divide, and that is the disconnection we have from ourselves. And the other two are around the social divide, which is a disconnection from others, and the ecological divide, which is a disconnection from the environment. We see nature as something other than ourselves rather than understanding we are nature. Humans are part of nature. We're not separate from it. We're not observers of it. And so if you track it all back, you know, the spiritual divide and disconnection from ourselves is kind of central to the other two. That's really interesting. I think as Westerners, I know, particularly for me, I don't think of myself as being a part of the land but I talk to my Aboriginal and other Indigenous friends and they're very, the land is a part of who I am. The land is where I come from. If we don't look after the land, that's the same as not looking after ourselves. And they just have such a strong spiritual and emotional and physical connection to the tangible land where they are from. Yeah. And when I speak, you know, as a New Zealand European, we 
are, I think, so many generations removed from that connection. There's a lot that we can learn from people in our own countries, in New Zealand and Australia and all over the world, who are closer to that connection, still have that connection. When we look at you know, environmental challenges in the world and what we need to do to change the system around climate change, our lack of connection as part of the environment, not the environment being something we're doing to, is a challenge. So this idea of connection and things being in conversation with each other all the time is like just fundamental to the way the universe works, I reckon, mm. without getting too existential on it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I just want to change tack slightly. Yeah. On your LinkedIn profile, you describe yourself as a humanist, conscious capitalist and B Corp founder, forging human-centred leaders and fully human organisations. It's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. I was thinking that as you were saying it. <laughs> I wonder how often we read our LinkedIn headlines back to ourselves. Yeah. Well, I certainly haven't. Maybe I need to do that for mine too. It's an attention-grabbing headline. What does it mean? It means a lot in terms of positioning kind of helping people identify with me, I guess, is, is part of the point of that, is, is either piquing curiosity for people to ask the question, what does it mean, or seeing themselves in that in some way. So, again, it's about this connection being made. So humanist, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of labels and over-identifying, and some of these labels aren't sort of something that if you cut me, I bleed them, but they are helpful for people to understand what I think and what I do and what they might expect when they engage with me. So humanism is a school of philosophy, a reasonably modern school of philosophy, and along with existentialism and stoicism, three schools of philosophy that I'm really curious about and which sit underneath a lot of my thinking about how humans are in the world and how we are with ourselves and each other. And I don't think people read enough philosophy. <laughs> and it, there's, a, I think, a growing need for it when it comes to understanding ourselves and some of the dilemmas that we're facing as people and on our planet. And humanism is really about believing that when I'm not putting faith in a higher power to solve our problems. It's not to say there isn't one. But I think human beings, I totally believe human beings have everything it takes to solve the problems that we have and create an, an ethical, humane and inclusive society. It's just our humanness, ironically, that gets in the way of that happening. So conscious capitalism is about reimagining the way we do business, really, do capitalism away from the Friedman pure profit motive and shareholder return. There's a primacy in business and towards a profit and purpose and the opportunity of business to change life on the planet for the better, which is why I was very happy about the recent business roundtable shift in purpose in the States and I think a very powerful and strong signal about the changing times, whether those organizations have the leadership and the intestinal fortitude to make some of the decisions about how they do business to line up with that, different question. What are some of the things that they've talked about in that business roundtable? One of the principal shifts is away from profit and shareholder primacy. So business exists to make a profit and return that to the shareholders, to extending the responsibility of businesses to all stakeholders. My recollection of it off the top of my head, because it's about 300 words long now as opposed to the shorter version they had, is that they haven't included the planet as a stakeholder in that, but they have included 
their people, which is a really important missing piece. I think we're certainly seeing that shift in Australia in the light of a couple of the Royal Commissions in the banking and finance sector and in the aged care sector. The things that are coming out of those are that there's been such a focus on making money that people have been forgotten. Yeah. And what I've found quite interesting, particularly in my reading of the Banking and Finance Royal Commission papers, are that a lot of the um, the criticisms aren't where banks have done anything illegal, but they've just they've been doing things that are unethical. Yeah. And it's that fine line of what's your responsibility to your shareholders and your investors compared to your responsibility to your people and your people being your workforce, uh, well, starting with yourself, but your workforce and your customers and your broader stakeholders who might not be financial investors. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think the thing that I'm, what I'm conscious of in all of these conversations is this need to humanise business and one of the things that we do to dehumanize and remove a sense of responsibility from the equation is to talk about organizations like they're things when they are people. So people created those policies and processes. People made those decisions. It's not the bank or it's a system that's been created and supported by the shadow side of our humanness. And this is part of what I think we have to own and face into as people is connecting to and acknowledging that there is the shadow side. We have this incredible capacity for compassion and honor and kindness as human beings. And that's shown in so many different ways every day on the planet. Equally, an almost infinite capacity for unkindness, you know, greed power seeking. And when you start to break all of that down, it, it comes from some basic human wiring that we're evolutionarily adapted for, but which we you know, have the brain power to take more responsibility for these days. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to say we have such a great capacity for kindness and compassion. We absolutely do. But I think we also have this inherent need for kindness and compassion, and that often gets forgotten. Yes. I'm always curious when I see behaviours that are so unkind or cruel, whether it's to other people or to animals or to the planet, and I think what drives you to be that way. Mm. And I automatically think you don't have enough kindness and compassion in your world because there's not enough people who are treating you well, and so you're behaving in the ways that, that people are treating you, and whether that's from childhood or from adulthood or in the workplace or wherever you're operating – people clearly aren't behaving towards you in a way that's making you think, oh, yeah, I can be kind. Yeah, and I, th I think it's a great point of reflection for listeners, you know, in this moment is to think when you were last kind to someone and how did that feel and what was the effect? When was somebody last kind to you? And similarly, what was your experience? But also when were you unkind, like consciously unkind to someone where you had what I call, you know, the sliding door moment where you had a choice and what you chose to do was something that was unkind, even in a small way. And how did that make you feel, you know? Or did you even notice or did you that even you were notice? being Great. unkind? Yeah. I talk a lot to my clients about kindness and I think kindness doesn't need to be a big, flashy, expensive thing. Kindness can just be noticing that somebody needs something and doing it for them without mm. being asked or without any fanfare and certainly without sharing on Instagram or Facebook that you did this great kind thing. Yeah, hashtag humble brag. 
can't tell you how much I hate that hashtag. <laughs> but it is, it's a moment of connection. What all human beings want to know is that you noticed. Mm. You noticed me. You saw me. And even if you see me and you see my shadow side, you don't judge me and I'm still okay and we still have a connection, even though you've seen something that's maybe a bit not pretty, yeah, a bit ugly, because yeah. that's that's the nature of humanity. Um, and I think if we could just be more honest about that stuff, a whole lot of the bullshit that's going on at the moment will drop away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it's kindness in the nature of doing your job, in the course of doing your job. Mm. And sometimes it's seen as service, better customer service or just being of service. The link between service and kindness, for me, overlaps incredibly. And a great example that I've had recently is my little recording device. Yes. <laughs> a girlfriend of mine, well, my friend Jen Dana, who was on my last podcast episode, gave it to me a couple of years ago, but she didn't have any of the paraphernalia. So one of the things it didn't have was the power plug to plug it into the wall so that I don't chew through batteries every time I use it. And so I went to buy one and the I went to my local battery world in Cannon Hill in Brisbane and the man who served me, I reckon it took him three hours over the course of two weeks to find the appropriate plug because he didn't have what he needed and so he ordered it for me and somebody drove it from another store to his store to get it and then I took it home and the, the plug didn't fit into it. And so took it back and he said, okay, and it, he was on a mission to make sure it worked. And eventually he found it and then it didn't fit into the other bit. <laughs> and so he had to do some soldering and do some super gluing. And now it's plugged into the wall and not using two batteries every time I record, which is such a waste. And he just went so far out of his way. And when I thanked him, and thank you, Tom, if you're listening, um, <laughs> he said, but that was a part of my job. And I'm like, actually, you went above and beyond because to me your job is to sell me the device and then to refund it when I said I didn't fit. But no, you were determined. You were like a man on a mission. <laughs> and the difference that made to me in terms of me not now having to drive all around town or spend unnecessary money online trying to find the right bit, you know, who knew there were 250 different sizes of plugs that plug into the wall or that plug into the, the device? <laughs> Certainly not me. I now own about 50 of them. But it was just such an unexpected gesture that, yes, some people would say he was doing his job, but for me he made my life so much easier and he was reduced so much friction out of my world every time I use this now. It's awesome to have those experiences and for them, I guess the thing that's not so awesome is they're such standouts, they generate stories because it's not what we expect. We're so busy caught up in our own bullshit that we don't notice an opportunity to do something like that. Yeah, and I was in a board meeting with a client the other day and one of their board members is from Qantas and he's the head of a customer something at Qantas. And I said to him, I always fly Qantas. And he said, thank you. <laughs> and he was a bit uncertain because <laughs> yes, we'd been talking yeah. about social media and how people are always slamming. And I said, after probably every third or fourth flight, I make a point of going on Twitter and saying thank you to a particular crew member. I mention the flight number, I mention the day, because every single time I fly with Qantas, there's some aspect of it which is exceptional, whether it's we arrive before we meant to or the crew are kind either to me or to somebody else or, you know, they're extra smiley. Yes, they're doing their job, but there's that little something that every single 
time somebody goes above and beyond. Mm. And I'm sick of seeing on social media this bashing of people for poor service. And yes, we do need to call out bad service, but there's a time and a place and on Twitter isn't it. And I just think I just want to fill the world with more great service examples because the more you see it, the more you want to do it. Yeah, and it would be great one day for that to be the norm to say, well, that person is, that is what doing your job looks like. Yeah. That it's not exceptional. It's just that's what performance looks like. I'm having this conversation with a lot of clients at the moment around, you know, the high performance, <clears throat> standout performance. We want to be a high performing culture, a high performing team. And it's like, how about we just start with performing and redefine performance and then support everybody to grow and meet those standards rather than look for exceptional stuff you know, redefine performance standards and expectations and just help everyone meet them. Yeah. And I think, you know, Gallup tells us 13% of people are engaged at work. Which is appalling. And that has a massive impact on performance and productivity and profit and all the other Ps. Yeah. Why don't we just look at how we can fix what's happening in backyard first, getting more engagement at work. And if we just lifted that to 20%, think about the benefits that that would have that would flow on to not just the rest of your workforce or your customers, but that those people would take home and mm. that that positive flow on effect that would have with their families and their children and future workforces. And engagement is like trust. Okay. It's, it's not a thing per se. It's part of the human experience. And as a leader, your job is to create the conditions for someone to experience being engaged. Yes. We try to measure it. But the fact that that many people are saying that's not my experience, it's not just about having a good day or liking your boss. It's like I, the conditions are created for me to do my best, be connected to the organisational purpose, grow all of these different things that mean, yeah, I'm engaged at the moment. This is my experience. And even something as simple as saying to your staff and to new staff, what do you need to do your job better? Mm. What is it you need from me? or from this organisation, so that you can more easily do your job. And sometimes it might be the latest operating software on a computer, or it might be a newer mobile phone, or it might be some tangible piece of equipment. But a lot of the time, it's support. Yeah. And it's acknowledgement that it's gratitude, and it's saying thank you, and it's acknowledging that I've done a good day's work, and that I've solved a problem. Or it might be the flexibility to come in late, couple of times a week so that they can take their kid to childcare. Or it might be, can I work from home one day a week because I have a two-hour commute each way and I just need a day a week where I don't have to do that. Yeah, and one of the things that I encourage leaders to do, not just with people who start new in the organisation, you do it with, if you're taking in, if you're starting new in a team, do it once a year as part of a team activity and then keep it alive, do it at home, is create a what I call a living contract and that is a, a contract is an exchange of value. So, yes, these are things I need. These are the things that I therefore expect. And, and for both either both sides of its two individuals from a, a connection conversation to be saying, this is what I need from you, this is what I expect of you, that's a two-way street. And then keeping it alive by reviewing it in one-to-ones, reviewing it in team sessions, checking in with your kids, every school holidays as a family to say, how are we going? Things like that, where you keep the conversation alive about what you need and what you expect as the context changes. Yeah. And that's um, 
just started working with my husband. So he's starting to do some work for me and I know you work with yours. And one of the things I said to him, we had a formal meeting when we agreed that he would do some things for me. And I said to him, what do you expect of me? What do you want from me? What can I give you and do for you that will make it easier for you? Because I'm pushing him a long way out of his comfort zone with some of the things that he's doing. And he gave me some answers and I said, okay, well, I'll commit to do this and this and this. And I said, and I commit that this is what I expect from you. And I went through a few things and I said, and you need to commit. Can you commit or do you commit to me that you'll do these things? And one of the things I said to him is you need to tell me if not explaining things clearly, because I have an assumption that you'll know what you're doing, but you might not. So that I'm not frustrated and you're not frustrated, we need to both commit to have this open communication and we're putting a process in place where we have formal work conversations that don't involve the kitchen when one of us is cooking dinner. No, it's very important <laughs> to have an agreed delineation around what's the home conversation and what's the work conversation. Yeah. But, but creating that container of the what I offer and what I expect what I need means that you then have a container in which to have conversations about growth, about recognition, to offer feedback and an anchor point to come back to and how you're being together and what you're creating, be that at home or at work. And it means it's much more meaningful. People have a sense of progress. They're being noticed. They're being paid attention to. And even when that feedback might be what we call redirective, where it's like, you know what, you said you would do that thing and you haven't quite done it and so we need to have a talk about it, that still comes back to that you noticed me and you care enough about me and what we've agreed to that you're going to take the time to have a conversation with me to help me. Yep. And having a conversation around you haven't done it, do you not have what you need to be able to do it properly? Like why haven't you done it? Not in an accusatory way, but in a have I not given you enough direction? Have I not given you everything you need? Or have I overloaded you with other things mm. that you haven't gotten to it? Yeah, because performance is a two-way street, right? Absolutely. I, mean, I see this a lot where people are performance managing an individual in a situation in a work environment, and but they're not the performance of the leader in terms of creating an environment for that person to do their best, being clear on expectations, et cetera, isn't interrogated in the same way that the individual contributors' performances, and I think that's a mistake. Performance is a relational dynamic. Yes. Humans. And I think when you link that back to engagement, I've had a few conversations recently with colleagues and clients who've said to me, this particular person in my organisation isn't performing as I would have expected for somebody at that level. And I've said, and they've told me a few of the things that they've done, and I've said, are they overwhelmed? The first question I've said is, what's going on at work? Nothing. What's going on at home? Maybe something. Are they overwhelmed with too much, don't understand, it's above their skill set, do they need training, do they need guidance? Because quite often, from my experience in managing people, that lack of engagement is because they're either bored, so they're not challenged, or what they have to do is greater than their skill set and they don't know how to admit that, or they're overwhelmed with too much work yeah, and they don't know how they're going to get it all done and so they do nothing, or they do little time-wasting things that are way, way below their pay grade. Yeah, good to give them a sense of progress and yep. alleviate anxiety. And I think the, the the piece of what you shared there around are they overwhelmed and do they, do they not have the time and space applies as much to the manager who's identifying that this person isn't performing. Because one of the challenges I think we have in life and business these days is we're trying to do more, faster We've got less and less cognitive capacity. 
ever expanding to-do lists. We've got mucky overloaded strategies and people are not seeing the value of creating space, what I call creating space in the pace, to connect with themselves, to connect with other people at a deeper level so that they can work out how to do better, not just go faster. And what it takes to create the space though and the ability to facilitate conversations with yourself or with other people that go deeper into what's actually going on and sit with the problem longer and be vulnerable and be humble rather than be racing action orientation to get shit done takes quite a lot. It sounds simple, but it's actually more tricky. It needs different capabilities and capacities than most people have been developed to have at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I'm reading Cal Newport's fabulous book, Deep Work, for about the third time. Every time I read it, I get something else out of it. Mm. And every time I read it, I think, oh, yeah, I've been running in circles because I've been focusing on little short things and not big picture things. And I think we're not taught to do the deep work. And I think particularly in a time with mobile phones and email overload and technology advances, we get so caught up in, I have to respond to that email now. I have to return that phone call now. I have to answer the phone when it rings every time it rings rather than letting it go to voicemail and calling it a time that suits you more than, you know, right now might. And I think we're not giving people the tools that they need to be able to sit and focus. And I think particularly with open plan offices where there's so much noise around you, I love a good open plan office because as a manager and as a leader, you can get a sense of what's going on around you and the health of your team through the conversations that they're having. But you need a place where you can go, where you can close the door and have complete silence if that's what you need to focus. And a lot of workplaces don't have that anymore. And I just think, how do you get anything done? No wonder productivity is declining and engagement's not there because there's this sense of overwhelm and our brains are being just overloaded and confused with noise. One of the things in my experience that is missing is a conversation amongst people, the people involved in any situation where someone wants to make a change or there's an opportunity to make a change to do periods of deeper work or reflection, whether that's on your own or whether that's in a group conversation to make the space to do that. The conversation is about permission because having the capability and everything else to do it or a quiet workspace, if we don't have a culture that gives you permission to say, in fact, encourages you to take periods of quiet space to do deeper work or to say no to meetings and yes to designing longer, more effective meetings or shorter, more effective meetings, whatever the case may be, meeting culture is a whole nother podcast. I think the permission piece and the culture we have around that is a critical missing link because what we have is a culture of busyness, execution, people living out of their inboxes, people attending all the meetings they get invited to because they're petrified something's going to happen that they miss out on and they get blamed for. And there's less connection in many ways in open plan environments now because people are seeking quiet space by sitting with their headphones on all day, even if they're not listening to anything, just so they won't be interrupted because other people's important becomes more important than what you're doing. So I think the, the, the cultural piece around open plan or activity-based work environments isn't addressed deeply enough or in a consistent manner. It might be addressed when you move to that environment as part of the onboarding, but actually the ongoing conversation is not being facilitated by leaders. 
Yeah, I agree. And I was having this conversation earlier today with some some other colleagues and was saying how when I last worked in an organisation, I mapped out how my week went because Mm. I wasn't getting any of the project work or my work done. And I had 16 people in my team. I had four direct reports and I mapped out that in an average week I had 27 hours of meetings and I had 47 interruptions and that was in the 10 hours I was in my office. And that was people coming to my door, that was phone calls, that was other people's urgencies that needed to be done immediately. And that didn't even include email. And I thought, no wonder I'm not getting anything done. And so what people are doing, because we don't now have a nine to five at the office work experience, we have a 24 seven work anywhere, always on experience. The Again, the conversation that I believe needs to be facilitated is about the creation of self-negotiation, creation and negotiation of self-set boundaries around time and space because people don't want to work anywhere. They want to work somewhere. Now, maybe that somewhere is at home one morning a week because it's nice and quiet and they can get stuff done. But it's I think the, the we're not having the conversations that best support us to make the most of these changes. We're just writing rip shit and bust into the middle of these things and then feeling stuck and vulnerable and not confident to say this is not working for me because people are afraid they're going to get offed because of rolling restructures or penalised by their manager and said, well, they're not playing team or something like that. And then we feel resentful, overwhelmed and resentful. And not engaged. (laughs) You read my mind. Yeah, and (laughs) I think this this relentless pace of execution and, and competing, increasing complexity and competing priorities and the fact we're not acknowledging how humans work individually and collectively and we're not talking about the things that matter, that will, we're just screaming faster and faster towards the end of, edge of a cliff. Yeah. What do you do? How do you work? Well... That is going through a bit of a change at the moment, actually, or on the on the dance card, because I think what I've found is because I now need more thinking time, because my role in blacksmith is changing from being, you can't see this on the podcast recording peeps, but there's a hand gesture, that it's an appropriate one, that represents taking me from being inside, stuck inside in the back room working with a few clients to out the front leading the charge in terms of the thinking and and building a movement around this more human-centred conscious approach to business and leadership. So from me just being caught up in the doing this and in some of the many of the same traps as other people, because that's the environment we've grown up in, I'm now moving to more of a batched working approach. So we changed things up in our business a couple of years ago and changed our resourcing model, which meant we didn't need a physical office for everyone to come to, most people work from home, but we set up an office at home and that's been great. But 18 months in, it's like I need my home back and I actually need some thinking space because even though there are only three of us, we are effectively in an open plan environment. And In your home. In my home. So it's been great, but it's also kind of no longer working for the changing role that I'm in. And I think that's where the flexibility and constantly being up for the evolution of how you're working and your role changing, which is part of the way the world's going generally. So I'm going to have a design quiet thinking space two days a week where basically my out of office is going to be on and my phone will not be answered. Yeah, great. 
and then the other three days of the week be available to clients and my team and things like that, just to get that space. Yeah, I've done similar. So I've worked from home for 12 years and it was great. And last year I realised I needed somewhere else to go. And, you know, I've always gone to cafes and done a little bit of work there, but I moved into a WeWork co-working space in December and it's one of the best things I've done. I go in probably twice a week, sometimes three times, sometimes four times, sometimes once, sometimes not at all. But it's just a space where I can go and they've got little phone booth areas where I can sit and focus and do things. But it's also a great place for me to go in and meet with people. So usually I go in on days when I have heaps of meetings and then I've got a couple of hours where I might just sit and focus on some work. And I normally am quite productive when I'm there because there's no distraction from things at home. So there's no TV, there's no Netflix, there's no fridge, there's no husband who works, you know, shift work and part-time. And so it's been fantastic for me and it's well worth the investment. But I think sometimes it takes a while to work out what's going to work for you. And we both have the luxury of working for ourselves. And so we don't have a higher power who we need to seek permission from to Mm. do things like this. Organisations I've worked in in the past and worked with who've said no flexible work and no work from home have said that because they don't trust their people. And I think it is a big leap of faith that people will do what they're meant to do when they're not in the office under your purview. But if you if you measure what they achieve based on the output and the productivity and the production of whatever it might be as opposed to the number of hours in the office – I think you'll find that people work a lot harder for you. Yeah, and and I think that part of the challenge, even in organisations where the conversation around flexibility is being had, is that sometimes it's limited to kind of part-time hours or work from home, and it's only being had one-on-one when it's a really important conversation to be having as a team about what everybody wants. You know, this comes back to the offer-expect kind of thing, what I need and what I'll offer and what I expect back in return is – that the needs, how do we meet the sometimes competing needs of people in the team and the flexibility they want and still deliver, still be available enough, still deliver, still meet the demands of the business and customers and really how does it level up our operational efficiency and our ability to make impact rather than create a subject of it's not fair, I'm not getting mine, how come this, you know, there's a lot of potential conflict and resentment and ineffectiveness and productivity challenges if you're just having this conversation around flexible new ways of working, really. It's new ways of working rather than flexibility with one-on-one. You actually have to talk about it together as a group. And what are the – if we – and take an experimental approach and say, let's try this for the next 90 days and see what happens – and then notice what's the feedback from other teams. Are we delivering what we wanted to? What's working? What's not working? And, and you know, be checking in every 30 days on that and be prepared to pivot. And that's adaptability, which is what we need rather than getting fixed. Because the flexible thing's interesting. It's like only flexible in terms of it not being the norm, but it becomes a new fixed way of working for the individual as opposed to saying, This is an emergent approach and we're going to agree something as a team which meets as many people's needs as possible and still delivers value to the organisation and we're going to keep doing it until it's not working anymore and then we'll have another conversation and try something else. As you said, flexible means something different to everybody. Yeah, you've got to talk about it. Language is, it's beautiful, but one word means wildly different things to different people. And for some people, you know, flexible is part-time. 
for some people, flexible is working from home. From some people, flexible is working through the night. Yeah, exactly. So how do we make all of that work? And some jobs, it's a lot harder to be flexible than others. Some people just, they have to be on site because that's where the technology yeah. to do their job is. So, Or, you know, if your job is to bag groceries at Woolworths or check an operator at Woolworths, you can't do that at home. You have to turn up to the store and stand in the same place and do it. But there can be flexibility around the hours you work or the shifts or the start time or the end time. Yeah. It's about having conversations and working out something that's going to work yeah. for as many people as possible. Everything we've been talking about really strikes at the heart of where a lot of this is going wrong, and that is a lack of conversational competence more generally, like knowing how to listen, how to ask great questions, how to be really present, how to facilitate things when they get sticky, how to have the conversations that matter well, because not only are we not making the space for them, but I think people are afraid of them. I think so too. And asking hard questions can be really hard. Hearing the answers can be even more hard. Oh, yeah. And how do I feel? How am I feeling? Because I'm going to have a, and this is, you know, part of my thinking around this whole human-centered approach is from a human context perspective, there are two aspects of it. It's kind of this up and out, understanding the super system of which we're a part globally, the organization, connecting to people at a personal level to understand what's going on in their lives. But there's also this in and down element, which speaks to emotional intelligence, which is I'm having an emotional response. I'm having a thought response. I've got a narrative running about this situation and I'm either a natural fight, flight or play dead responder. And so I'm going to act out in a way that will derail this situation and, and remove the potential for creative outcomes and deeper trust and connection. If we're not learning how to do that, then none of these conversations are going to happen. Yeah, exactly. So I've just got a few more questions before yes, we wrap up. And I don't want to end this conversation because I'm really <laughs> enjoying it. Well, we'll keep going, but unfortunately, dear listeners, you're not <laughs> going to be part of it. <laughs> What's one thing that you do to become more connectable? One thing. Or multiple things. I'm going to take two, please. <laughs> so the first thing is I am always open to when people – say that they'd like to have a conversation with me about something, provided they're specific on what they'd like to have a conversation about. As much as possible, I will make some time for that, whether it's a half-hour Zoom or a phone call or a, a coffee. I'm having to manage some of that because otherwise I'd spend all of my life drinking talking, coffee. To, drinking coffee and talking <laughs> to people. But where there's mutual curiosity and value, I want to be available for that and I love that. That feeds me. And also I think LinkedIn's an incredibly powerful tool. So from a social platform perspective, that's my way of being connectable to a global community, which is the level at which I'm playing and want to continue to play and become better at. So where I can catch up with people in the real world, great. But otherwise LinkedIn's bloody brilliant. Yeah, I love LinkedIn. Yep. It's opening so many doors and creates so many opportunities to have amazing conversations with incredible people who you otherwise might never get to know. Yeah, and there's just a different tenor to the connections and conversations you make through that platform. I think it truly is a professional community as opposed to just a social one. Yeah, it's kind of like Twitter was in its early days mm. where you'd have really deep, engaging, enlightening, fascinating conversations with people. Yeah, Twitter's sort of moved away from that, slowly coming back, but LinkedIn's it now 
What um, book or podcast are you listening to or reading that's really impacted you? Oh, gosh, I listen to lots of podcasts. I am looking forward to having a bit more time in my new way of working to listen to and process more of them. So one of the ones most recently that I've listened to that's just been really impactful and has kept me thinking for a while was a Tim Ferriss episode where he interviewed Chip Conley, who was the founder of the Joie de Vivre hospitality chain, boutique hotel chain in California. And I remember seeing Chip, one, I'm a Chip fan, and I'm a Tim Ferriss fan. So just the quality of the conversation and some of the insights specifically about midlife wisdom, this idea of what Chip Connolly calls modern elders, and I think Gen X, of which I am a proud member, smallest generation, we're in midlife now. We're kind of from our early 40s through to our early to mid 50s. And I think this redefinition of midlife as a period of awakening and wisdom and responsibility and an opportunity to realize that we have, we're only halfway, you know, we're going to live for 100 years. And the opportunity that we have to change our role in society, community, family, and not see ourselves as being done, but actually just beginning. Yeah, 50 is the new 30. Yeah, and I'm a card-carrying member as yeah. of Easter this year. so I'm rapidly approaching. Yeah. Slightly in denial, <laughs> but excited about doing my 30s again. <laughs> yeah. As I say, I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss and his interviews. I'm not such a big fan of his books, but I do love his podcasts and of Chip's work, both what he's done in business, but who he is as a human and what he's sharing. And I encourage people to check out the Modern Elder Academy, which is a social enterprise that he has set up based out of Baja, California in Mexico. It's been going a year and they run residential retreats around this whole midlife wisdom modern elder thing. And I am going on one for my own development in the middle of next year. So That sounds amazing. Yeah, just wicked. It's such a great concept. So that, both of those people I'm fans of, but that particular conversation they had probably just came at the right time in terms of where I'm at in life. Ooh, I'm going to follow that up. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. What are you reading now? I am actually reading a just for fun book. As you know, in the thought leader business, we consume a lot of other people's fantastic thinking. You know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and wonderful people who do great thinking. So periodically, it's nice to read something for shits and giggles. So I am reading one of the latest of the Orphan X series of books by, I've written down the author's name so that I wouldn't forget it, Greg Hurwitz. It's called Out of the Dark. They're just thoroughly enjoyable and distracting reads that are so well researched, the level of detail he gets into about some of the technical aspects of the spy world is really cool. So I get through two chapters of two chapters of a fiction book at night before I go nanas. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> I always have a fiction on the go and yeah. a nonfiction and I try to alternate, but I've been a fiction reader my whole life and I sometimes struggle to put those aside for the more thoughtful educational yeah. books. Yeah, I can't read thinky books at night. I just need to have a bit of little bit of brain candy. Me too, me too. What do you want to be remembered for? Making business more human. I love that. And on that note, where can people find you if they want to have a chat? Yeah, as before mentioned, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. It's just Kate Spilling, K-A-T-E, 
U R B I L L I N G. I'll pop a link. Yeah, thank you. So that, or you can check out Blacksmith at www.blacksmith.co.nz. Great. Thank you. My Um, pleasure as always. I loved this conversation. I'm sure we'll have many more over the next few days. (laughs) And I'm sorry, listeners, but you're just going to miss out on those ones. (laughs) Although we might have Kate back because I had a whole bunch of other questions and things I wanted to talk about, including your B Corp involvement oh, yeah. that we haven't had time to talk about. So No, well, a quick plug for B Corp. Check out B Lab, B Corp for benefit corporations and also very, very proud to say we're about to be recognised. Blacksmith is about to be recognised as in the top 10% of B Corps in the world for our work. So it's, it's very exciting. I'm pretending I'm holding pom-poms and I'm waving <laughs> them around <laughs> as I do a silent cheer because <laughs> I know how passionate you are yeah, and how you. committed you are to B Corp. So I'm so thrilled for you. Congratulations. That's just amazing. And we might have to get you back on as a guest when you come back from Baja next year. This time. Oh, next I'd love year. to. Love to share. Okay. Thank you very much. Pleasure. See you next time, people. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.